Good morning. We had the uh, Jansons with us. They're uh, uh, missionaries in um, the Philippines uh, this last Wednesday, and they got to share with us how they have been planning a church. And it was really exciting to hear about the, the ministry that they have. They said that they went like two years, I think, two years uh, uh through online messages, uh, you know, having church service online, and um, that that's quite fascinating to think about. Uh, I was kind of tired of it after about six weeks uh, to think that they went that long, but uh, praise the Lord, they've got two churches established. They're looking to buy a property, and I think they said $70,000 would um, get them the property that they need, so uh, let's be praying for them. We are in... Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2, and we'll be looking at verses 4 through 7. If you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verse 4, this is the Word of the Lord. But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I pray now that you would, uh, your spirit would illumine our minds. Father, we know it's your will that we become formed to the image of your Son. Father, there might be some here that are unsaved, and the first step would be for them to accept Christ as their Savior. Father, for other of us here, we need to be encouraged to continue growing in our relationship with you, uh, saying no to sin and, and living in gratitude and glorifying you. Father, there's other of us who we've been involved in sin, and we have not been forsaking him. I pray that you would forgive us and that you would uh, convict our hearts so that we can change, empower our wills so that we will live and be more like Christ and less like ourselves. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. In, in the book written by Jim Berg, uh, Created for His Glory, which is a, a neat book, it has a, a workbook with it too, and uh, he kind of looks at different aspects of the letter to the Ephesians in it. But uh, it's, uh, it's a great study. He, he wrote, he gives this illustration that I'm, I'm going to develop a little bit more. Imagine you're driving on I-81 uh, in Virginia. And uh, there you are. It's mountainous. There's these tall trees. And uh, there's a, kind of a wide medium, and the medium is, is kind of hilly uh, so that you're not getting, you know, some of the lights from the oncoming traffic. And so you're there driving on I-81 going northbound in Virginia, enjoying the landscape and so forth. And as you're coming up, <clears throat> all of a sudden you're, um, you notice in the medium, kind of hiding behind one of those little hills, a state trooper. Now, it doesn't matter how godly of a person you are, but what happens? What immediately happens? 
Your eyes drop and look at your speedometer, don't they? Your heart starts racing. <clears throat> and uh, you, you, of course, you, you're, you're all, you come to North Oaks Baptist Church, so you all go the speed limit. But you want to make sure that you're going the speed limit, right? And, and so you, you, you put your eyes on and, and you make sure. And, and, but, you know, you're not safe yet. You might have a, a, a taillight out. You might have uh, a light, the light over the, the license plate out. You could have a whole number of things that he could stop you. And so you go past him and still your heart is racing. And you're, you're hoping <laughs> that you've checked your car and everything is okay. And after maybe a couple of miles, you're like, I don't think he's going to come after me. Now, as you, as you think about that, the, the state trooper... Uh, what, what scares you, what gets your heart palpitating like that, gets your hands all sweaty, is that he has a certain amount of power. He has power to give you a ticket. He has power to, to pull you over, ask you questions. And, and that power, as you, uh, as you are speeding past him at the speed limit, still makes you a little bit nervous, right? Now, imagine uh, a scenario is different. You're working over here at uh, Greens Point Mall. That's the one over there by uh, the airport, right? Kind of close to the airport. You're working there, and you've got uh, your responsibility is to uh, to close up. You're the last one there, and so you turn off the lights, you set the alarm, go out the door, lock it, and uh, because you're a good Christian, you you parked way in the back of the parking lot and let you know. So there you're walking towards your car, and I mean, it's way back there. And out of the shadows come these three big dudes. I mean, big dudes. And they come towards you. In fact, you can tell that they are gaining on you faster than you're gaining on your car. And uh, as you're trying to get to your car, you hear them coming up and when they're just three yards away from you, all of a sudden this police officer comes out and he, he intercepts them and uh, gets them arrested. They, they had just robbed a, uh, a store and, and he arrests them and puts them in the car. Lo and behold, it's the same state trooper you passed in Virginia. But something has changed now. Rather than being nervous at the presence of the police officer, you, you find peace. You find a safety, you find a comfort. Same dude, but, but something has changed. And what has changed is your relationship to the law, to, to the person enforcing the law. That has changed. No longer are you a possible breaker of the law. Now you're just the worker there that uh, was a, obeying the law, and there's some other people who have been breaking the law, and he comes after it. And the sight of this police officer brings you peace, safety, and comfort. That This difference is in how you relate to the law. Now, what Paul has been presenting in the first three verses is a very grim picture. Uh, we are dead, and this aspect of being dead in our trespasses and sins, is that we are separated. Uh, you can think of dead as not having life, but that's not the idea here. People are alive, but they are separated from God. And there's not a thing in the world that you can close that gap. There's, there's not anything on your own behalf that you can somehow 
close the gap and get even an inch closer to God. You are separate from God. You're dead. Not only are you dead, but you're walking according to this world and you're living for the desires of the flesh and the mind. So it's a, it's a very grim picture that's presented here. I mean, it, it just doesn't seem like there's any hope in the situation at all. The only hope that can be is through believing in what Christ did on the cross. His death in your place is the only thing that can bring you salvation. There's not a other thing, there's not another move. So Paul presents in the first three verses the problem. It's the problem of problems. And now he's going to go into the solution. What we're going to see today is that we need to live eternally grateful because God showed his love by blessing us in and with Christ. Live eternally grateful because God showed his love by blessing us in and with Christ. We see the first point here is that we need to rejoice in the God that loves you. Rejoice in the God that loves you. And we see that in verses 4 and 5. Finally, Paul introduces a subject. Now, the the sentence goes from verse 1 all the way to verse 7. But uh, he introduces a subject in verse 4. And that subject is God. Uh, how are we supposed to understand this God? Who is this God that he is mentioning? How, who is this God? The best way to understand it would be contextually. It would be kind of strange that he's been talking about one God and then all of a sudden he switches gears and talks. So contextually, what has he presented about God? Well, we'll look at chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, this is the God who willed Paul to be an apostle. He's also, in verse 2, the God that gives grace and peace. In verse 3, God blesses us with heavenly blessings. God is, in verse 4, is the one who chose uh, us to be holy and blameless. Verse 5, God predestined to be adopted children. Verse 6, God freely bestowed grace in Christ. That's just verse 6. We could continue describing this God that acts on our behalf. But we're looking at chapter 2, and we've already looked at chapter 1, so let's, we'll move forward. But contextually, this is the God that he is referring to, God. Now, it has this um, conjunction here, and it's a contrastive conjunction. It, it's contrasting what was previously mentioned with what follows. Uh, on one side, you have the deadness of the human race. And on the other side, you have what God has done. And it, the, the, the plight is terrible as you look at it. Uh, you're dead, you're separate, but God. And now it's going to describe him. It's being rich in mercy. That word rich has this idea of being abounding even more. There's people that have what they need, and then there's rich people. Rich people have things that they don't even know that they have. Uh, they say, you go up to them and say, hey, can, can I borrow your, your beach house for the weekend? And they say, do I have a beach house? Yeah, you actually have two of them. Oh, well, sure, go ahead, use it. That, that's, that's, you have so much wealth, you don't even know what you have. This is this idea of this word here. It's, you have an abundance over, over in abundance. And, you, and what he has of over in abundance is mercy. And, and it's a present. It's not like you were merciful, but being, it's a continuous progressive thing. Being now, you are being 
mercy, rich in mercy. This word uh, mercy is the only occurrence that happens in Ephesians. You, you won't see it again. And it has this idea of kindness or concern expressed for somebody in need. The aspect of neediness is very key with compassion. It's showing pity or mercy towards somebody in need. Now, in the New Testament, it appears uh, several times, some 27 times, but uh, if we look at some other context to try to get a better understanding of this aspect of showing compassion or mercy for somebody in need, we could go to Matthew chapter 9. In Matthew chapter 9, you remember that uh, Jesus is, is walking and he sees Matthew, and Matthew's at the tables collecting taxes, and he says, follow me. And Matthew starts to follow him. In fact, that evening, he's at a house, and uh, there is, it says, sinners and tax collectors. I, I think that's so funny how the conjunction puts them as, as if they're equal categories, a sinner and a tax collector. Okay, I only found that funny. But uh, it, it, it doesn't seem like they should be uh, categories that are parallel, but uh, Matthew puts them as equals. And he's there eating and enjoying food with them and talking and uh, the Pharisees, they're on the outside. They, they don't dare go in there. I mean, that's just a mess, you know. It, but they, they see one of the disciples, and they call him over, and they say, uh, your teacher, he, he's in there. He, he's talking with them. He's eating with them, fellowshipping with them. And uh, Jesus hears them. And he tells them, you know, it, it's the sick that need a doctor. Healthy people don't need a doctor. They don't. And then he quotes from Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, that God uh, desires to give compassion. It's, uh, the, the, the word used there is, is a Hebrew word that has a, uh, a loyalty, a, a loyal love, a faithfulness, a graciousness. But it carries this aspect of a person in need and the person having pity on that person to satisfy that need that they have. It's also used again in Matthew chapter 12, verse 7. The, you remember the, the, the scene where the disciples are walking through a field, and it's a Sabbath, and they are picking off the, the heads of, of the wheat, and, and they're eating it. And, and the Pharisees see this, and they're violating all types of rules. I mean, they're, they're walking on the Sabbath, they're, they're harvesting grain, they are uh, eating it, uh, preparing themselves something to eat, and so they come to Jesus, and they're upset. And they say, look what your, your disciples are doing. And Jesus again quotes from Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, that God desires to show compassion on the needy. Now, this, this aspect of compassion, a person is either needy or not. Either you have a need, and God shows compassion or you don't have a need. If you don't have a need, there's no need for compassion. What he says is that God is abounding. He's rich in mercy, this compassion. And it says here, as, as we keep on, because of his great love. The, the conjunction there, uh, it, it, uh, it's, it's there to give a cause. The reason for his rich mercy, his rich mercy is there because he loves. 
and it's his great love. He demonstrates his, uh, his mercy through, through his, his love. Now, it, not only that he loves us, this word is a, is a free choice on his part. There's no obligation. He, has, he owes us nothing. But his great love he freely gives sacrificially. Why? Uh, because he loved us. The, it, it clarifies. He loved us. That, that's just an incredible thing to think about. He loved us, and because he loved us, he sacrificially is merciful towards us. And then it goes on to say, even when we were dead in our transgressions. That, that's our state. We were dead. Separate from God. He made us alive. Here we finally get to our verb of, of our sentence. The subject is God, and the, the verb is made us alive. And, and it includes the aspect of together. It's an interesting uh, verb that it includes making somebody alive with someone. It, he made us alive with Christ. With Christ. And then he says, by grace you have been saved. Uh, this grace now is different from mercy because it's a, it's a, a benefit disposition towards someone. It's to show goodwill towards someone. Uh, this word permeates this letter. It appears 12 times in, in the six chapters of, of Ephesians. And then it occurs over 150 uh, times in the New Testament. It permeates the message uh, of the New Testament. And we were, as it says, uh, by grace you have been saved. It's an interesting tense how Paul includes two, verb, two verbal forms there. Uh, we are, which gives a current aspect, but the save part is a perfect passive participle. The perfect has this idea of an action that occurred in the past but still has an effect in the present. The passive part means that the subjects, uh, the people there, they didn't save themselves, uh, but rather it was an action done towards them, and it's a participle that has a continuous aspect to them. So you were saved in a past time that has a present effect, not by your own self, but it's something that God is continuing to do in your life. He's continuing to save. By grace you are being saved wasn't just an action done in the past. It's a continuous action that God is working throughout the person who has believed. Now, as we think about this, Paul tells them that they were saved and currently being saved by God's grace, by his beneficial disposition towards them. Now, we should rejoice because God, uh, rejoice in God because he loves us. And I want to ask us uh, three questions to just think about. Three, three questions. Do you live in the shadow of a merciful God? To live in the shadow means to live very, in very close proximity. There are some trees on the edge of the property there, uh, some pine trees. I cannot live in the shadow of the pine trees over here. I, I have to be over by the pine tree. So it, it involves a closeness. Now, when we think about what we know about God... Many of us know that God is a just God. Many of us know that God is a holy God and he hates sin. We also understand that he's omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent. 
and Paul could have used any type of attributes to describe God and God saving people. He could have used, he kind of gone into a bunch of different directions. But through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the aspect of God's mercy gets highlighted. God being a merciful God. Now, when we think about this, to have God as a merciful God, it, it requires that you be needy. See, if you have everything, then you don't need God's mercy. You don't need God's compassion. It, it requires you to be very humble, extremely humble. Now, there's a text where this word is used in the New Testament for mercy. In, in Luke chapter 18, Jesus is giving this parable, and he's talking about that uh, in the temple there's two guys. There's one's the Pharisee. And the Pharisee is standing, and he's uh, talking uh, to, to God, and he's looking up, and he says, Thank you that I'm not like those sinners and those tax collectors. Thank you so much. Well, the, uh, the tax collector, he's, uh, he's on the other side of the temple, and he's on his knees. And the text says he, he doesn't even dare to look up. He just keeps his eyes down while he is beating on his chest and saying, Have mercy on me. If you're not needy, you don't need compassion. Like if you have everything, if you got your life together, you do not need God's compassion and he doesn't give it. Because compassion requires a neediness. Now, it would take somebody to be very arrogant or somebody very ignorant to say that they're not needy. Because verses 1 through 3 have just given what our plight is. We're dead. And not only are we dead, but we wrap ourselves in our transgressions and sins. And, and we live for the God of this air, the God of this world. And, and not only do we do that, but we live according to what we desire and what we think about. So it would require a, a person to be quite arrogant or ignorant to say that they don't need God's abundant mercy. Let me just apply this as we think about, am I living, am I living in the shadow of, of a merciful God? God's mercy is abundant, which means that it covers all your neediness. All of it. There's not an aspect of your life that God's mercy does not cover it. There's not an aspect of your life that God did not know before the foundation of the world. He didn't, there wasn't a single sin, a, a single action, a single motive on your part that his mercy is not enough to cover because of his love towards you. That's an amazing thing to think about. The other thing is God's mercy is abundant for all who will come to him. You, you can invite your friends. There's enough mercy there. You can tell your co-workers, come! He's merciful. He's rich in mercy because of his love. You can go to the nations and tell them, come! Come to God. He has enough mercy for you. It should motivate us. It should push us forward because he is rich in mercy. The second question is, do you find comfort in God's mercy? I was trying to think 
about it, and uh, there's a, a certain personality type that would not find comfort in God's mercy because it requires an aspect of neediness. I'm talking about those, those people that get straight A's. The, the people that always uh, move up. They, they don't fail. If they fail, I mean, they beat themselves up. They, they, they don't need compassion. I mean, they've, they've done stuff in the past that's bad, but they will do better. And so they drive their wife crazy because they will do better. They drive their kids crazy because... They're not going to fail again. And they push everybody aside, run over people because they will do better. You can't. You have a, a sinful nature. You depend on God's compassion. There's no way around it. Either you're needy and you need Him, or you're self sufficient. You'll drive everybody away if you act like that. If you stand on that, on that pedestal and say, I don't need this, you'll drive everybody away. Now, when you think about this, God's mercy, God knew all of your sins. And he, even like that, he decided to choose to make you holy and blameless. He predestined to, through adoption to have you as his child. That's an amazing thing to think about, and it should bring you comfort to think that God is a merciful God. The third question I would like to ask, do you share God's mercy and love with others? The subject is God. The verb is made us alive together. That's what God does. And that's an incredible thing to think about. That's not a judgmental story to tell somebody. That, that's an amazing story to think about. Now, I'm going to use two illustrations that are kind of nasty, and, uh, but you'll forget it and you'll be able to go to lunch and, and have no problem. So don't, 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 don't get worried. If you come southbound on Huffman's Corval towards Spring Cypress, there is a, a deer that tried to cross the road and he didn't make it. And he got hit and his remains are all twisted up, and they're on the side of the road by the curb. It's been like that for like three weeks. There's been different animals that have come and uh, taken some of the tissue away, and it's just there rotten, all disgusting. In those three weeks' time, do you know how many people have stopped to try to help the dead deer? You know how many people have come and invested into that dead deer and say, I will rescue you out of your plight! I haven't seen a single person. And I've driven past it a bunch of times. I've watched it deteriorate. Now there's bones sticking up. It's quite nasty. But no one stops to help the deer. The other illustration is a friend of mine, he's a pastor of a church in North Carolina. Back in the 90s, he went to Haiti. And Haiti was going through a terrible situation and and he was preaching a conference. He was staying in a hotel, and uh, he had a taxi driver that would take him over to the conference center, and he would preach and then take him back to the hotel. And uh, it, it, There was a tremendous amount of poverty and hunger, and people were dying. And many times people were dying, and they were just dying in the street. And the taxi driver 
would, would go around the people like as if it were potholes. No one would gather the dead bodies. They were just there in the street, and he would, they would drive around trying to avoid them as if it were potholes. No one, no one cared. No one cared at all. Now, think about that with us. We were dead. But much more worse than dead, we were in active rebellion against God. That God, who is great in mercy, he loved us. God, who is great in mercy, he loved us. By grace we are saved. That is a wonderful message. It's not a judgmental message. It's a message we should be sharing with others. Shouldn't we? Isn't it something we should be telling? Look, you're dead, but, but God loved you and showed mercy towards you. Do you share that with other people? Now, we, uh, we're also supposed to rejoice in God that blessed you. We're supposed to rejoice in God that blessed you, and we see that in verse 6. Uh, Paul gives uh, two verbs to describe the actions that God did towards the dead. Uh, there it says in verse 6, He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places. Uh, he raised us up, which has this idea of um, raising somebody who is dead uh, and giving them life. And uh, it's that participation in the resurrection of Jesus Christ that the believer has. It's a mystical union that the believer has with Christ. And not only has he raised him, but he has seated him to cause somebody to sit down, and specifically in the heavenly places. Now, in two occurrences already in chapter 1, we have seen that the heavenly places is the place from which blessings come. So we have been raised up and seated with Christ in the place from which all blessings come. That's an amazing thing to think about. To be in the place from which all other blessings come from, that's where we're at. It, you think about that, and um, it, it made me think about, you know, there's a difference between rich people and poor people. They, they think about things differently. A rich person will look at a Ziploc bag, and they'll use it once, and then they'll throw it away. But a poor person, what will a poor person do? Poor person will use that Ziploc bag four or five more times. They'll wash it, you know, hang it up on the silverware and let it, let it, let it dry. Won't they? It's a difference. They, they see things differently. Or rich people, they, uh, they use money to gain, uh, to, to gain more assets that produce more money. Poor people, they confuse liabilities with assets. And they purchase liabilities and they think they have assets. It's just a, a different way of thinking. Now, when you think about this, about the rich and the poor, uh, can you imagine the president uh, taking a Ziploc bag and when he pulls his sandwich out, he goes to the sink and washes it out and hangs it up? Wouldn't that be absurd? Wouldn't you think... Um, <laughs> Don't you have something better to do than be washing out Ziploc bags? Or, or can you imagine Bill Gates? Bill Gates seeing, man, my property is huge and it cost me $500 to pay somebody a week to cut the grass. And I think I want to save that $500 a week 
and I'm going to start cutting the grass myself. He's losing more money than he's spending. You would think, this is absurd that Bill Gates is, is cutting his own grass. He's got something better to spend his time in. We have all things that have, are in Christ, seated in the heavenlies. Yet many times believers get distracted with earthly, temporal things. And it's as absurd as Bill Gates thinking that he's going to cut his own grass to save $500 a month, a week. It's as absurd. It's living with a poor mentality. It's thinking like, I don't have anything, so I'm going to live for just today. And it's absurd. It takes a different mindset. Uh, Jesus talks about this. Uh, in, in Matthew chapter 13, uh, he gives two parables back to back. Matthew chapter 13, uh, the first is found in, in verse 44. It says, the kingdom of heaven is, is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from the joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. See, he found that there was a treasure worth more than everything he owned. So he got rid of it all so he could have the one treasure. It goes on in verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. <clears throat> he found the one pearl, and therefore everything else was negotiable. When you get to that point, when you find out that you have all blessings in Christ, going back to Ephesians, then even your life is on the table for negotiation because you have it all in Christ. You have it all. You can go spend your life on the mission fields in the darkest continents. You can, you can go spend your life because you have it all in Christ. I'm not talking about some foolishness of temporal, earthly things of having your best life now. I'm talking about in Christ. You have it. Many Christians, they'll just continue living with a poor mentality, searching after earthly things, temporal things, being satisfied in the most mundane, and then thinking they had a great life. When God offers so much more in Christ. And it takes a different mentality. Now we're also supposed to rejoice in God who shows his kindness. God shows his kindness. Verse 7 starts with a purpose conjunction. And it gives the reason. The reason of why he has done these verbs of gave us life, raised us, and uh, seated us is so that for this purpose in the ages to come he might show it's a uh, subjunctive. Uh, the possibility to, to direct attention towards something. In other words, the purpose of him doing this is that he wants to show something. He's going to direct attention towards 
Look at that. Look. What is he going to say look at? That he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us. That's the purpose. He's going to direct attention and say, I saved them. I rescued They were dead. They were like that deer. And I rescued them. I gave them life. I, I did that. Look at that. He, he's doing that towards us in Christ Jesus. That's the purpose. Who gets the glory? God gets the glory. He's going to show off His rich mercy, His kindness. Now, this uh, surpassing riches of His grace in kindness or generosity towards us. Now, Paul could have gone in any number of directions to talk about God's salvation. But he talks about God's kindness. Do you believe that God is kind? That he's a kind God? You might say, well, I would agree with you on orthodoxy that yes, he is kind, but my experience tells me otherwise. And at that point, you could probably start sharing with me a situation in which there was a problem and you started praying. And you prayed and prayed and prayed. And if God were a kind God, he would have stepped in and changed that situation. But unfortunately, that situation just went ahead and played out. And so while you might articulate sound doctrine and say, yes, God is kind, your experience tells you, no, he is not kind. Because if he were kind, he would have stepped in. But he didn't. Now, there's no easy answer to that. But... Um, the aspect of suffering and pain, we live in a fallen world and God is working through a fallen world to bring glory and for good of those who love him. I'd like to use an illustration by Pastor John King, pastor for many years in Princeton, West Virginia. Uh, his, he told about his daughter that was born, her, his second daughter was born, and she had a condition where uh, on the bottom of your tongue, there's a little piece of tissue, and uh, you're supposed to have uh, a bit of tongue and then that piece of tissue in the back. But her piece of tissue went all the way to the tip of the tongue. And uh, it was going to cause a, a terrible speech impediment, uh, it, and it needed to be cut so that she could uh, have her tongue freed. Now, it was, uh, it was, it was Princeton, West Virginia, and it was uh, kind of a rural doctor. The nurse wasn't there. And uh, so the, the doctor said uh, to, to John King, he said, you know, uh, lay her there, and you hold her head. And um, we'll open up her mouth. And uh, he was holding her there. She was crying. She was upset. And then uh, they pry her mouth open. And the doctor comes at her with, with the scissors and uh, goes in there and snips that piece of tissue. And the daughter is crying. I mean, she doesn't understand why her dad would be so mean to be holding her down like that. She is upset with the doctor. Why would he do that? It caused pain in her life. She did not like it. <coughs> but her father knew that unless that tissue got cut, uh, she, she wasn't going to be able to speak correctly. She's going to have a terrible speech impediment. 
Uh, furthermore, she wasn't going to be able to lick a sucker. I mean, that just wasn't going to happen. Or an ice cream cone. She had an older sister, and she wasn't going to be able to stick out her tongue at her later on in life. I mean, that just wasn't going to happen. It'd be like, ugh, ugh. It just, it just wasn't going to happen unless that tissue got cut. Now, she didn't understand, but the father understood. You go through hardships in your life, and you pray, God, please, stop this. And you don't understand why God, in his kindness, allows it to move forward and play out. But you have to realize that you're not in God's perspective. You don't see and you don't understand. And by faith you have to accept God is a kind God. <coughs> Out of all the different attributes he could have used here, Paul used that God in his kindness saved us. Now, we think about that. Paul, uh, Paul mentions in Romans that he's working all things together for good that those who love God. We're to live eternally grateful because God showed his love by blessing us in and with Christ. You remember that illustration at the beginning? The difference between how the person saw the police officer was how they were related to them by the law. In one situation, they could have been guilty. And so, as a guilty person, they did not want to see that police officer. They wanted to get away from that police officer. They, they did not enjoy the presence of that police officer there. As in the other one, where they're at the mall, they really liked the police officer. They, brought, they found comfort in that police officer. And the difference is how they related. As we look at the solution that Paul gives to the problem, it depends on how you're related to God. Some of you say, no, God is not kind because you want to do your own thing. And as you're doing your own thing, you're running from God and you don't want him around telling you, stop doing that. Other of us, we enjoy, we see this and we say, praise the Lord. But it all depends on how you relate to God. Please bow your heads in prayer with me. Father, I pray as we consider this, that if someone here is unsaved, that they will consider their relationship with, with you, Father. Father, I pray that at the moment of invitation that they'll come forward and we can share the gospel with them and they can be saved. Father, I pray for other of us here who we have um, not been enjoying fellowship with you. We've been wanting to do our own will that we'll repent of it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.